Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. On the 100th day of Russia's war on Ukraine, Moscow continues to make gains in Donbass as France, Germany, and Italy press Kiev to end fighting and give Vladimir Putin, the man who started an illegal war targeting Ukrainian civilians, displacing millions, killing tens of thousands, and precipitating a global food and energy crisis, a face-saving way out of the conflict. The EU banned Russian lobbyists from its premises and also agreed to ban 90% of Russian oil imports by year's end, but exempted the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Slovakia, and gave Moscow six months to find new markets for its oil. European gas imports will be reduced by 67% by year's end. So Russia will continue to profit from Europe as Putin appears to have rightly calculated that the West will buckle before he's forced to do so by sanctions. As Europe dials back its support, Washington authorized the long-range precision rocket artillery Kiev has long sought on condition they not be used against Russia proper. Facing pressure to lower energy prices, President Biden will visit Saudi Arabia to make amends with Riyadh in relations ruptured over Mohammed bin Salman's war on Yemen and the killing of Washington Post reporter Jamal Khashoggi at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Two weeks after Biden's trip to Asia, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi proposed bringing together 10 regional nations in a new trade and security pact. And the International Atomic Energy Commission inspectors have reported finding radioactive materials at three undeclared Iranian uh, sites. Uh, Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, now at the Center for a New American Security, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and check out our two weekly podcasts, our Cavus Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week, and tune in to the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Dove, as you know, uh, Congress is out of session. And so uh, Michael Herson of American Defense International gets a break. Uh, talk to us about any budget news. Uh, I think we're in markup season. Give us uh, a sense on where we are uh, as uh, what is a very consequential defense budget moves uh, through the sausage making process. Well, uh, they're going to mark up the NDAA. Uh, it's coming up uh, very, very quickly. Uh, as you know, uh, the Armed Services Committee's uh, pride themselves on the fact that they get one out every year by hook or by crook sometime. And I don't think this year will be any different. Uh, it's still that the both committees, uh, House and Senate, are among the most bipartisan committees in Congress. Uh, that hasn't changed very much. Uh, and uh, I think all signals are that uh, they will increase uh, the Pentagon's request, uh, Mike Herson has said it to go as high as 150 billion. It's certainly going to go well above 50 billion. Uh, and uh, there again is a consensus about that. So uh, that's the big budget news. Uh, and uh, 
beyond that, uh, I think we're going to have to wait for Mike to come back. Indeed, uh, it will be good to have him back on the program. Uh, Dove, one of the things we've been discussing is sort of uh, right Republicans, uh, f- you know, as, as we have discussed over the past many years, Republicans tend to uh, find debt as an issue whenever there's a Democrat sitting in the White House. Um, are Republicans that balked over aid for Ukraine going to balk over more U.S. defense spending or is that going to be um, not an issue as, as far as you're concerned? I think there's a difference. Um, the argument that was made over def- over uh, help for Ukraine was essentially why are we? It was almost the Obama argument. Why are we spending money overseas when we need to spend money at home? Uh, that's a very very different kind of argument from the argument for cutting defense. Yes, there will be some uh, sort of uh, the relics of the Tea Party uh, group, uh, if we still remember them. Uh, who will want to cut some defense spending. But uh, they've been around for a while. And uh, every year, the uh, armed services committees prevail. One of the reasons being, of course, that uh, defense spending is spread all over the country and affects just about everybody's district. So uh, I don't see that as being a major obstacle. There really is a difference between that and, and the vote over Ukraine. We should point out, right, I mean, uh, we had another positive jobs number and unemployment is down to 3.6%, even as um, markets are, uh, you know, concerned, obviously, about inflation uh, and uh, a a recession. Um, Let's uh, shift to the 100th day uh, of this uh, brutal war that's taking an enormous toll, not just uh, on on Ukraine, uh, but around the world, uh, Russia being uh, directing its massive firepower in Donbass. The terrain is much more uh, conducive uh, to Russian uh, gains and and certainly could allow Russia to uh, accomplish its goal of uh, uh, creating the two uh, independent or autonomous uh, uh, Donetsk and, and Luhansk. Uh, republics, uh, as have been the stated goal, even though uh, Russia did try to take all of Ukraine. Jim, uh, where where do we stand on Europe's support for Ukraine? On the one hand, uh, the EU is sending positive signals, you know, continuing on its targeted sanctions uh, on on Russian oligarchs. We're, we've seen uh, Russian lobbyists banned uh, from the EU, which is a positive step. We've seen the oil uh, uh, banned to ninety percent at the end of the year. We saw uh, gas. At the same time, uh, we're seeing uh, France, uh, Germany, and Italy, arguably the EU's three most important countries, uh, pushing. Uh, Kiev to uh, to negotiate and give Moscow a face-saving way out of this. Concerned, obviously, because of domestic rising food prices. Uh, obviously, France is an important African power. The Senegalese president met with Putin asking to free Ukrainian uh, grain to alleviate uh, f- food concerns. So, I mean, obviously, some of these nations don't just have their own parochial concerns, but, but are uh, global powers. Give us your sense on where we are on this crisis and whether or not we've actually crested the high watermark. Germany has not been sending for example, any heavy weapons uh, for a while. I think its last shipment was was in April. Give us give us your sense on sort of where we are right now and where we're going, because you very early on in this conflict saw the United States and Europe actually diverging on this eventually rather than staying on the same page. Well, I think just quickly on Germany, uh, they have now uh, shipped out uh, more uh, heavy equipment. Uh, I think it's the Martyr system, uh, uh, which is a uh, track vehicle that does... Uh, close air, you know, it does uh, air defense, close air defense, uh, that's going to be shipped out. And, uh, you know, so they're, 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 they're 
they're coming around, but they're just not, they're not being quick enough. And so I don't want to, to, to say the Germans haven't done anything. They're doing it. They're just doing it too slowly. And a lot of that is the factor from the coalition and how uh, Schultz is, is operating there. I mean, there's other things involved too, but, but, but the Germans are getting there. But the, the couple of big, big points. Number one is, I think first we have to look at what's happening on the battlefield in the Donbass. Um, and this is where uh, the standard Russian approach uh, to, uh, to, to warfare of using artillery and grinding through on the ground uh, nations who may be opposing them, whether it was in uh, World War II, the Germans or, or otherwise, they are doing that now in the Donbas. They are using their mass uh, and they are focusing on narrow points in the battlefield and they're just grinding through and they've had some successes over the past week or two. And I think it's just underlying that we can take nothing for granted in terms of who might win this thing militarily. Um, and uh, number one and number two, this is a war of attrition and time is not on the side of Ukraine. They've got a limited uh, a number of personnel and, and equipment and they're dependent on the West to keep shipping, not just systems themselves, but particularly ammunition for them. Uh, and the uh, consumables, that's what I'm worried most about is that they're going to keep the manpower to a point where they're not totally exhausted and they're going to have uh, the uh, spares and support and the, the maintenance and the logistics, the things that keep a military moving uh, when they are dealing with this kind of war of attrition. Uh, it's going to be tough. And I think we've got to really buckle in and um, because the next number of weeks, I think, are, are going to really be telling in terms of whether the Ukraine military can, can hold and then push back Russia or if they're just going to grind through at a big price to the Russians. But nonetheless, uh, they've got more to throw into the battle uh, and, and the, whether they're going to grind through it. In terms of the, where the Europeans are, um, I think we saw in the EU after a lot, a lot of talk, uh, they got pretty close. Uh, if not, uh, they got their arms around this. Hungary is continuing to cause problems. Um, but I think we, we're, we're just going to have to expect this kind of thing coming from Europe. Um, we've got uh, different politics when it comes to uh, Ankara and when it comes to Budapest, uh, when it comes to Berlin, uh, in terms of both the politics as well as the economy and the dependence that those economies have on energy. And uh, for Germany, for instance, uh, a coalition that is just hobbling along is, is, is walking this tightrope between going into recession uh, in terms of this, the, um, you know, what will happen if they cut off the energy uh, in, a, in a very swift manner. Um, and, uh, and if that throws their economy into a tailspin, what happens to the coalition? And so uh, they're having to tread very carefully, which we don't like because we want them to act fast and we want them to put a lot of forces into or equipment into Ukraine. Um, so we're seeing uh, in Paris as well, we're seeing what it is uh, when it comes to Europe. It is not a homogeneous continent of nations. I think a lot of people think Europe is is, is is unified whole and they just are not. And so it's painful and frustrating to watch decisions being made, but it's done nation by nation. And I don't think we can draw conclusions that Europe is doing this or Europe is not doing this. They're really, the EU is trying to drive everybody in the same direction, but it is absolutely hurting cats. But they're getting there. This is the sixth package that they agreed to a couple of days ago. It's going to have some significant energy aspects to it. And I think they're continuing to move forward, but they do have to deal with these outliers. 
um, in terms of, of their political unity. And, and we'll just see how, how things work out. But they're continuing to move uh, in the direction you want them to go in. It's just it's painful getting there. So, uh, so you don't think that it's too early to say that Putin has actually sussed this out strategically well that the West will buckle before he will. So you don't see it that way. You just see this as part of the standard European messy way of of trying to thread all of these individual needles. And I'm not minimizing it, right? I mean, Joe Biden is under enormous pressure domestically uh, to go to Saudi Arabia, for example, and make amends. Uh, and and I think the Saudis and, and uh, we'll hear from you in a minute uh, on what their conditions are. Uh, right. Uh, because the president is getting no quarter uh, well, from Republicans, for example, on oil prices. So well, so do you think we're getting there or is this is, is Putin going to get off the hook somehow? Because when people talk about face saving gestures, Vladimir Putin should lose as much face as possible to save well, face means he wins. Well, ultimately. first of all, first of all, I don't think Putin is, sus- is, is sussing anything out. I think Putin is taking it day by day. I'm not impressed with anything that Putin has said or done. So the idea that Putin uh, is going to is has got a plan and he's going to fig- he's figured it out and he's going to win at the end of the day uh, because he's such got such a great plan. I think that's garbage. <laughs> I think I think I think right now he is he is hoping at the end of the day that this that he will prevail over this war of attrition the way Stalin prevailed over. Uh, the Germans by just grinding by the end of 1945, just grinding them away through sheer mass, not brains, not a plan, not a, you know, but just using brutal force. I think Putin is look is using that, that same playbook. Uh, the number one, number two is certainly he had assumptions about the United States and about Europe that have proven absolutely wrong. And one of those is that Europe is going to divide. And I, and I think there are fissures in Europe uh, it is hard to keep everybody moving in the same direction, um, but I but I don't see right now Europe falling apart and uh, and all of a sudden uh, Macron or anybody jumping on planes and heading to Moscow to appease Putin. I don't see that, and I think people who read people who don't know Europe and people who see this stuff in the press about Hungary or whatever it might be, and they draw conclusions, you know, that, oh my God, this thing's collapsing. It's just what we thought would happen, feckless Europe. Well, that's just wrong. Uh, it just shows they don't, people don't understand Europe. It's just, this is the way Europe works. I see these fissures that you, that, you know, uh, Ursula von der Leyen and those guys have to work these things. They've been working it. I don't see major divisions right now. Uh, people getting on the phone to Putin, whether it's Macron or, or Schultz, number one, we don't know what they're saying. So we can't draw conclusions. Number two, um, they talked to Zelensky before and after, and they talked to to uh, to Biden before and after. They're not going to go off and freelance right. there uh, when we're when we're pretty tightly uh, connected uh, between these capitals and these leaders. You, you're, uh, there, I, I'm certain there, it is not the case that Macron is going over and trying to find an off ramp for Putin. Uh, and um, to help, you know, I don't I, I think I, I, I think genuinely, as in Washington, they're trying to figure a way to land this plane without things totally blowing up. But I don't I don't see them at, at uh, right now. You know, I think it's an exaggeration uh, and it's naivete 
to think that Macron is getting on a plane or, or, or is on the phone to Putin and, 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 and kissing up and, and, and doing things that he's being accused of. I think that's just ridiculous. Um, and, uh, and I don't think that's in the future either. I think everyone's trying to find a way out of it. And I don't think Putin's listening to them anyway. And also, I don't think they trust Putin. So I don't think this is a matter of friends sitting around a table to cut a deal. So I think uh, I, I so I don't think that's the case at all. Dove, you just uh, returned uh, from the region. You were in uh, Finland. You were also in Poland. Um, and we talked a little bit about uh, Turkey's uh, opposition, which is hardened. Uh, it's trying to force uh, Sweden and Finland. Uh, it, it is it is trying to exact as high of a price as it can to allow this uh, to happen. Um, it is uh, unfortunately reopening a debate uh, and discussion about the reliability of Turkey as an ally, um, uh, as, a, as a NATO member. Uh, walk us through where we are. Well, first, I uh, want to get your sense on what uh, Jim said uh, about whether or not everybody is holding firm or not. It depends on where you're sitting in Europe, right? I mean, if you're sitting in Warsaw, uh, you're, you may be looking at Paris as, and Rome and Berlin as, as feckless and weak, uh, even if this is all part of the sausage-making uh, process. Uh, and I have to say the polls uh, and, and all the nations in the East are working pretty hard to try to get as much of that grain out that normally would have gotten out by sea by uh, terrestrial means, by truck and by rail. Well, walk us through first on the notion of U.S. and European unity and whether or not it's holding firm now on the 100th day of this war. And the second question is where we are with the Turks vis-a-vis uh, -vis the price they're going to exact, because each one of these are democracies and have rights uh, for refugees and what have you. And and what the Turks are asking may, may, may be for these nations to maybe abrogate uh, nor internal norms uh, you know, what, walk us through where we are on both of those. OK, well, uh, there is clearly a difference uh, between where the uh, Eastern Europeans are and uh, or Central Europeans, whatever you want to call them, uh, and the Western Europeans. Um, the chief of staff, the commander in chief, uh, the chief of staff of the Polish military said, we're not really the eastern flank, we're the eastern front. Uh, and they really are. And the prime minister of Poland basically said, we, we have to push for victory. The notion of victory, I think, is what divides the two sides, the East and the West inside NATO. Uh, for Eastern Europe, it really means pushing, like pretty much Zelensky has said off and on, pushing the Russians all the way back. Uh, I think the Western Europeans, uh, it may not be as dire as, as uh, Jim says, uh, they may see, precisely because of the reasons Jim gave, that the Russians are going to keep pushing. The Russians can put up with privation, at least for a while. Um, and um, they will keep push throwing people into the battle, using artillery and causing tremendous loss and destruction. And so uh, maybe from their perspective, from Macron's perspective, it's a matter of stopping the bleeding uh, because you're not going to be able to really push the Russians back. Uh, that's a totally different perspective. It's not necessarily selling the European, the Ukrainians out or uh, making Putin look like a hero. It's actually a very uh, sort of real politique point of view. It just happens to be quite different from what the Eastern Europeans uh, think because they're the neighbors and they know that uh, if NATO kind of sells out Ukraine, particularly after having supported it to the extent it has, uh, they don't know what will happen to them. And again, you got to remember a place like Poland, which was dismembered three times, 
uh, and was under foreign occupation, whether from Germany or Russia forever, it seemed, uh, they're going to be nervous about this, uh, as will the Baltic states. So um, one can see sort of uh, the arguments of both sides, but that tends to mean that there's, uh, and Jim is right about this, that there's a difference of view. Um, as for the Turks, first thing I want to mention is, you know, hiding behind, the Turks are running interference for Orban as well in Hungary. Uh, and the president of Slovakia has come out and basically said, you know, uh, we don't want Sweden and, and uh, Finland and NATO. Uh, his parliament is supporting it, uh, but he's not. So, you know, there's some sentiment uh, that goes beyond merely the Turks. As for the Turks themselves, uh, look, uh, Erdogan uh, wants certain things. Uh, he will not get uh, these PKK, the uh, Kurdish uh, we consider, we the Americans consider them terrorists. He considers them terrorists. The EU considers them terrorists. But uh, Sweden and to a lesser extent Finland are simply not going to give them up because of their traditions of having, um, letting people in. Uh, by the way, the Finns actually did turn over two uh, of these people. So it's not like they haven't turned over anybody. Um, but the real question is, you know, what can Erdogan get? And one of those things that he could get are the F-16s he wants uh, and the F-35 program that he wants back into. Um, it may well be that the administration would support that uh, in the end, because uh, this is going to be an end game thing. I think there's a, uh, a lot of desire to see this all happen before the Madrid summit, uh, which is coming up toward the end of June, the NATO Madrid summit. Um, but that's not enough. Uh, the Senate has to approve it and any kind of any kind of deal. And that's going to take work. Turkey is not popular on Capitol Hill, to put it mildly, um, maybe not as unpopular as the Saudis, but pretty unpopular. And so it's going to take on the on the one hand, uh, a decision by the administration to essentially intervene in what could be called a, a trilateral Finnish Swedish Turkish problem. Uh, but remember, the president has been enthusiastically in support of them coming in, but still they have to decide to intervene, what they would then offer, and could they offer it uh, and be sure that Congress will support it? Those are all a bunch of questions that have to be answered. Now, Jim, do you uh, just any commentary on that before we uh, go to Patrick to uh, uh, get sort of the Asian uh, flavor in this? I think what uh, absolutely what uh, Dove says is is right. It's um uh, it's it's a uh, it's certainly a supercharged environment from which Erdogan can try to uh, cut a deal that he didn't think he'd be able to cut six months ago. You know this the war in Ukraine uh, and uh, all the all the things associated with that, including Sweden and Finland, have really given him leverage he never thought he would have. I mean, the idea that he could get back into the F thirty five program. Uh, or things out of the U.S. in terms of security assistance, uh, you know, six months ago, that was would never have been in the picture. And now suddenly he's got some cards to play. So, uh, no, but I think I think what Dove says is is, is absolutely right. Uh, Dove would uh, uh, and Patrick, thanks for your uh, patience on this. Do you do you think that uh, Turkey giving up the S-400 is the right way to go and give those donate those to the Ukrainians? Uh, and then that solves uh, a very, very important problem. I mean, I think you cannot allow that capability to coexist with the F-35, right? I mean, this, this is yeah. 
extortive. Uh, right? No, you're, you're, a, you're, you're absolutely right about that. There are a couple of ways this thing could go. Remember, the uh, Bayraktar uh, drones are killing a lot of Russians. Uh, and uh, the Turkish drones have been killing Russians uh, in Libya. They've been killing, they killed them in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Now they're killing them in Ukraine. So having uh, transferring S-400s to kill some more Russians uh, would not be all that uh, uh, impossible. Uh, the, the, that's one possibility, of course, uh, transferring to Ukraine. Uh, another is putting them on, on Cyprus, uh, where uh, the issue just wouldn't arise anymore, um, putting them in Turkish Cyprus. Uh, you know, there, there are ways, there have always been ways to solve this problem. Um, but again, uh, this would have to be part of a deal that involves the United States, uh, because we're the ones who are upset about the S-400s. And that means that uh, it's no longer just Turkey, Finland and Sweden. I personally think that that's the only way they're going to solve this problem by bringing us in. Uh, and the S-400 could well be part of that mix. Um, I should uh, also point out, and I'm not just saying this because General Atomics Aeronautical Systems is our sponsor, the Bayraktar is a NAT. It was the first product that General Atomics uh, had. It was licensed, produced uh, by uh, Turkey. Uh, and so effectively, even though everybody is looking at it as the Bayraktar is actually the, the NAT, it is, uh, you know, uh, so just point, pointing that out. to me. No question. And General Atomics is very, very good at producing drones. Uh, but I believe that uh, the Russians think it's the Turks that are killing them. And the Turks uh, are certainly making out that they are. So, uh, yes, uh, you know, and maybe General Atomics doesn't particularly want to get credit right now for that either. Um, I, I, well, I, th I think they do. But ultimately, I think the point is that we're the only ones old enough to actually recognize that it's a it's a 30 year old. <laughs> so the deal was uh, 30 years ago uh, that that happened. Um, Patrick, you've been very, very patient. Uh, China has been trying to thread uh, the, the needle of supporting uh, Russia, buying Russian oil. Clearly, whatever oil the Europeans don't buy, the Chinese are likely uh, to uh, pick up. Uh, but China has challenges and problems all its own, even though the, uh, the lockdown in Shanghai uh, was lifted 75 days, certainly very, very hard for those many of those uh, living there, even though there are some who say, well, I mean, it wasn't that bad. Uh, ultimately, uh, the economic repercussions uh, on on China are rather uh, dramatic. Dove wrote a piece uh, in uh, the Hill uh, on the nearly trillion dollar uh, debt uh, burden uh, that the Chinese have taken. And ever since we ever since Evergrande, um, it, it is a, a, a nation that may have far rickettier uh, finances. Um, where are we right now in terms of Chinese support for the war um, and for the Russians and the economic challenges that fundamentally Xi Jinping and the leadership uh, are, are facing? Uh, because we, we are going to suffer likely more waves of, of COVID the more they open up or, or they are. We, we all collectively are. It's just that we're vaccinated, uh, better vaccinated than, than most Chinese are. Well, let's uh, peel this onion back. Uh, the leadership challenge for Xi Jinping, it's not going to uh, prevent him from uh, accepting a third term uh, at the 20th Party Congress, but he definitely is uh, in the throes of discussion about Politburo changes um, and what's going to happen at that party Congress. And that's going to be affected by the COVID lockdowns and uh, the end of lockdowns, uh, as well as the slowing economy. Uh, as Dove's piece in the Hill makes clear, you know, uh, blaming the Americans for their debt is not going to solve their problems. 
uh, and they're kicking that can down the road. When you're an $18 trillion economy like China, you can absorb a lot. And that's what they're doing right now. They're avoiding making the tough decisions. And to the extent they are making decisions, they're, they're hampering their longer term growth. And there are big questions there about what happens uh, in the coming years for China's economy. On Russia, they've made that decision. They are uh, the no limits, uh, you know, commitment to Russia is a narrative that they have to stick to. And the, you know, they may be chafing at uh, Russia, demanding more and more uh, assistance, um, but they're not going to show it publicly. Uh, what they are doing is that they're spreading out, they're they're internationalizing their uh, inter, you know, their security umbrella, if you will, um, by talking about this uh, vacuous global security initiative. Um, but it's not completely vacuous in the sense that Wang Yi is now uh, just finishing up his um, eight-country, ten-day tour in the Pacific, uh, and he is—he's uh, not completely uh, successful. He's—he's he's had some real setbacks for China in terms of trying to have a multilateral uh, security compact that is uh, billed as only a common development vision, but in fact it conceals, um, uh, you know, uh, cyber security, police security, and training. Uh, and other security access that may be part of that deal um, that worked with the Solomon Islands, but it wasn't as acceptable to Tonga in Samoa, into Fiji, where uh, it so happens uh, Penny Wong, the new foreign minister of Australia, visited uh, at the same time, uh, more or less, and, uh, and successfully negotiated uh, a pushback to, to China's uh, sudden lurch of a multilateral arrangement in the Pacific Islands. So you see China trying to uh, distract, divert from the Russia-Ukraine war, um, still sticking to Russia. They're learning a lot of technology lessons and, and you know, they're studying this war, you know, they will for many, many months and years, but there's no doubt when you think about uh, the resilient internet of Ukraine and the Starlink uh, satellite system, <clears throat> Chinese want to best that and, and, and replicate it. Uh, but they're also <clears throat> interested in how Taiwan and others might be able to continue their cyber uh, uh, resilience in the face of a Chinese assault, uh, presumably. Um, they're also looking at the drone technology. So they're trying to provide Russia better drones, um, and they're stepping up their own drone capacity. They just uh, uh, unveiled their own first drone mothership. Um, and meanwhile, the Japanese uh, next door I've just announced that with the United States, they're going to be creating uh, combat drones, could be capable of carrying missiles and start deploying them uh, by the middle of this decade in a couple of years. So um, the drone uh, race is, is on uh, in, in Asia uh, as a result of this war. I think there are other lessons that they're learning. They're also learning about U.S. alliances. And, you know, back to Jim's point, I think that, you know, what we've seen now is nobody's talking about Russia invading a NATO country. Um, you know, NATO has stood strong and united about that. So whatever arguments are going on about, uh, you know, when you should seek peace uh, between Ukraine and Russia, um, it's extremely impressive what 100 days into this war that NATO has come out very well. And that that reverberates in, in Asia with our allies in Japan and South Korea, Australia and elsewhere. Um, do, where are we? Talk to us a little bit about the security and trade pact that Wang Yi uh, is uh, marketing, right? He's uh, 10 nations. Uh, what would, you know, interesting that it's two weeks after Joe Biden uh, was was there uh, bringing together uh, a dozen or so nations uh, into a new trade uh, agreement that would succeed TPP. Uh, and obviously all the bolstering measures that the Quad uh, uh, did. Uh, talk to us about this new trade pact, what it means, who it uh, encompasses. 
well, you're right to mention these other uh, events because they are related. It's part of this competition in the, <clears throat> in the rollout. So on the one hand, um, the Biden administration has been extremely active in the past month. First, the U.S. ASEAN summit at the White House. So 10 Southeast Asian countries represented, well, minus Myanmar. Um, and then you had uh, the Quad Leaders meeting and they, they unveiled a new maritime do, uh, domain awareness initiative, uh, which would specifically help the Pacific Island countries in particular by space downlinks into regional fusion centers where you would have the Indian Ocean, uh, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific Islands fusion centers that exist um, in India, Singapore, uh, and in the Pacific Islands would, would be sharing information to help stop the kind of illicit fishing that uh, China is most known for in terms of the industrial fishing, uh, often unregulated. Um, the, um, and then you have, uh, of course, just the Quad Leaders meeting in Japan. Uh, and that's what prompted this avalanche of uh, what has been called, uh, not an avalanche, but uh, a, um, a blitzkrieg by Wang Yi in, in the Pacific Islands. Um, and it started by springing this security pact with the Solomon Islands. And Solomon Islands, important, historically important, because uh, the Australians in particular, it's, a, it's such a sensitive issue, but it was also the beginning of our campaign to beat back the Japanese who had expanded in the Pacific Islands during the interwar years, um, expanded uh, their reach down toward Australia after Pearl Harbor, and they were on the march, and it was only sort of turning around at Guadalcanal and, and, and pushing back uh, with the island hopping strategy of the United States and its allies to win the Pacific War, to set up the security arrangements we, we currently have that provide things like um, strong security for the U.S. alliance within the first island chain. And now you have uh, Wang Yi puncturing through that first island chain, through the second island chain even, uh, in terms of uh, a development vision that um, was leaked by, uh, by a New Zealand uh, uh, academic, actually uh, brought it to the public attention um, because the Chinese have not revealed it yet, still this joint communique that was drafted that talked about this uh, sort of uh, list of uh, types of cooperation that I mentioned is you know, in cybersecurity, in law enforcement, in customs, in uh, you know, policing, things that well transcend development narrowly defined. And um, it was not debated among the Pacific Island countries, which is why it got pushback in places like Samoa and, and Tonga, uh, who said, look, we, have, we haven't talked about these things. We've talked about aid and we want aid. We want Chinese commercial aid. We want their development aid. We want their grants. Um, but uh, nobody wants to be part of this sort of security arrangement. Um, and yet Wang Yi on his way out, of the region uh, at the end of this week, um, you know, had successful meetings in Papua New Guinea, and that's sensitive, um, Vago, because there's an election that's about to happen in July, right. and the Australians say we're not going to go to uh, PNG to Papua New Guinea until after the election, which seems proper. But Wang Yi says, "No, I'm going there because I'm going to put my money down on the current government, Marapé's government," um, and Marapé responded by saying, "No, we're a great friend of uh, of China." Uh, and then you have uh, in uh, East Timor, um, even as Prime Minister Albanese heads to Indonesia, um, you have a very successful Wangi visit uh, with, uh, with East Timor, uh, East leader. Um, and, uh, you know, those, if you think geographically of East Timor and Papua New Guinea, you know, you're straddling two parts of Australia to the north. Um, and this is very much uh, part of the uh, symbolism 
of the geopolitical competition that Beijing has in mind, even if these promises made to these countries um, are very conditional, limited, not clear they'll have a long-term impact, um, and they don't add up to a multilateral security pact. These countries are not even thinking in terms of national security. They're thinking in terms of uh, you know, local gains, you know, clientism, uh, what's you know, very parochial interests that they have in mind, or existential interests like climate change, very important. But if you think about climate change, uh, you have to think, well, China's producing 30% of the uh, greenhouse gases right now. So uh, it's tough for them to be talking about it. And yet that's part of their development pact too. They're helping them with climate change, even though China is the leading uh, emitter right now of greenhouse gases. I, I just want to get your sense, uh, uh, Patrick, about sort of the sense that the Australians have of themselves in the region and how welcome they are, right? Everybody has a sense that they're Australian and they're beloved and the Australians are a beloved people. Uh, but in part because of history and culture, um, they, they're beginning to also recognize, right? Or there is discussion about whether they're as beloved or as welcome as they believe themselves to be. And it appears that the new administration, uh, Australian administration is cognizant that it may actually have even a bit of a, a challenge in its own backyard, in part precipitated by the Solomons issue. What is the issue and how are the Australians being savvy and how they're trying to deal with it? Because obviously this is, um, you know, a, a, a maybe a, a, a tension that the Chinese have been trying to exploit uh, in, in terms of, hey, these guys are not Asian, right? They're, they're white people over here. They're not real Asians. Talk to us about the, you know, and, and that they, they do have a little bit of a checkered history with some of the indigenous uh, peoples in, in the region. Talk, talk to us about how, how, how large a challenge this is and also how Canberra is dealing with it. Well, as China tries to reassert itself historically as the Middle Kingdom throughout the region, um, they've been very quick to call for Asia for Asians uh, kind of rhetoric. Uh, Xi Jinping has been at the lead of thinking about um, there need to be Asian solutions. In fact, even Prime Minister Kishida made these comments in uh, Singapore this past month uh, to uh, the Future of Asia Forum, uh, where he talked about uh, we need to have Asian solutions. Now, uh, the difference is that Prime Minister Kishida was not excluding Australia when he thought when he made those comments, but the Chinese probably were uh, at least uh, uh, subliminally trying to convince the region that Australia is really this European transplant. It's aligned with the United States, uh, you know, so it has hard military uh, alliances that are, you know, in, in the Chinese rhetoric, uh, archaic. Um, and so they're trying to use that race, race card against Australia being uh, more influential uh, and more integrated with the region. In fact, Australia is, uh, you know, uh, steeped in multiculturalism and, and deeply uh, in, ensconced in the development programs of the Pacific Islands, providing more than a billion dollars a year uh, in uh, development assistance throughout the islands. Um, and it's uh, focused now in the new labor government uh, on uh, its closest uh, Southeast Asian uh, partners and uh, neighbors, including especially uh, Indonesia. And that's why uh, Prime Minister Albanese is on a plane to Jakarta right now, um, heading to, to try to uh, forge a strong relationship with its biggest Southeast Asian neighbor and why Foreign Minister Penny Wong has been uh, you know, visiting Tonga and Samoa and Fiji uh, and, and will be going to other Pacific Island countries in the coming weeks uh, because they want to show that Australia is very sensitive to the needs of uh, the region um, and is very much part of it. So 
um, China's going to have a hard time convincing uh, Australia's neighbors that Australia is not uh, an Asian country. Dove, uh, let me go to you uh, really quickly because time uh, is winding down. And, and I do want to get your sense on Biden's trip uh, to uh, Saudi Arabia, as well as uh, the reports uh, about uh, uh, nuclear residue found in three other Iranian sites, not decla- declared Iran, uh, Iranian nuclear sites. Uh, the Iranians say that this is unfair. It's a misunderstanding. I think we've heard that line from Tehran before. Talk to us about what Biden has to achieve with Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, and the Saudi uh, leadership, uh, and how and what it's going to mean uh, domestically, uh, ultimately as well. Uh, because as you said, uh, the Saudis uh, are not particularly popular uh, up on the hill, even if they are a strategically important uh, security partner, uh, certainly in the Middle East. Well, a couple, first of all, those two uh, items are actually linked. Um, I suspect that one of the reasons, and by the way, I think it was on this uh, podcast maybe six weeks ago that I mentioned that uh, Biden could be going to Saudi Arabia. It wasn't uh, a secret per se, but it was kind of pretty well hidden. Uh, And the reason, of course, was politics, because it's not good politics to cozy up to Mohammed bin Salman. I don't know as much on the Hill as it is in the media. Because after all, Khashoggi was um, uh, on the Washington Post payroll, and so all his colleagues will not will not forget that, and will not let anybody else forget that. Uh, and I think that the choice, the issue, basically boiled down for the administration: Do we, uh, given the price of oil that hits over five dollars here in the D.C. area, and pretty much around seven dollars a, ba- a gallon over in California, uh, do we uh, basically? continue to freeze out the Saudis when we need their oil, uh, and and particularly because we don't think this Iran deal is happening. I, I think that uh, you know for some time they thought, well, they could solve the, the gas price problem by get, getting a deal with Iran, letting Iranian oil flow to the market. The international markets are all connected. Price of oil would go down. Price of gas at the gas at the pump would go down. Everybody would be happy. Biden would look better. His poll numbers would go up. Democrats might do better in Congress. Well, that ain't happening. And so what does he have to do? He has to go back to Saudi Arabia, which by definition uh, will be looking like the United States is ready to forgive and forget. Remember, just having the handshake photo, uh, if you think back to Kim Jong-un and, and Trump, uh, that was a huge victory for Kim Jong-un. He wanted the photo. And I think Mohammed bin Salman wants that photo. Uh, and there's already talk about the uh, Emiratis and Saudis uh, starting to pump more oil. So uh, the trip, in a sense, is linked to the fact that uh, they don't ex- that the administration is pretty pessimistic about a deal. And frankly, it'll be much harder to cut a deal when with these three uh, revela- revelation of these three sites that uh, the Iranians were cheating on. How do you justify that? Uh, Congress is is not particularly supportive of a deal. Uh, there's actually a legislation that the administration would have to figure out how to get around if it didn't want to go to Congress to approve the deal. Uh, it's just awfully complicated for the administration. And uh, again, it's it's the price at the pump that's driving all of this. Uh, plus, the Israelis are pushing the administration as hard as they can to get the Saudis to uh, open up even more about their relationship with Israel. Uh, the Saudis aren't going to uh, join the Abraham Accords because uh, 
the custodian of the two holy mosques cares an awful lot about the one on, on Temple Mount and uh, therefore uh, cares about the Palestinians. So I don't think that's going to happen, but the Israelis would like to see some progress. You got pushing there. You got the gas prices. You got the fact that the Iranians have once again violated what they've undertaken, uh, proved to be liars yet again. Uh, and you've got, therefore, the difficulty of reaching a deal with the Iranians. All of that is driving uh, uh, the president of the United States to visit Riyadh uh, after all. Jim, really quickly, and uh, Patrick, uh, obviously the Europeans are party uh, to the uh, JCPOA, uh, so are the Chinese. What, what's the view from a European perspective, Patrick? What's the view from a Chinese perspective on the dissolution of the agreement? And then, uh, Dove, perhaps to you, what, what happens without the deal, right? I mean, we did the deal to stop the Iranians from developing a nuclear weapon, uh, not go to war with them. We weren't, you know, and we had hoped that we could change their behavior. But, uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, uh, intervened, dismantled the agreement soon after it was uh, done. We're now sort of at a bad place in the agreement anyway, right? I mean, sort of what, what does this mean from a European perspective? Are Europeans going to go along? Are Chinese going to go along? And what's next uh, in, in that order? Go ahead, Jim, start us off. Well, I, I think in terms of Europe, uh, you know, given what's happened with Russia, Ukraine, um, with the oil and energy, uh, you know, cutoffs, uh, the impact on the economies, there's so much happening in Europe right now. I think uh, I don't think there's as much focus on on what's happening with this with the deal as there would have been in six, eight months ago. Um, I, and, you know, I don't think they're so surprised. I, I think they're. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, they probably felt this was a bit of a Hail Mary anyway. Uh, and um, I think they're going to just look to the U.S. to see, um, OK, where do you want to take this now? Um, and I think they're kind of resigned to that. So I don't but I don't see it really. It's certainly not the big priority. It, it, it had been and it would have been had not Russia, Ukraine elbowed it out of the way. But I think they're they're going to just look to the U.S. and say over to you. Let, let's change the order. Patrick, uh, you'll go in a minute. Dove's uh, got to go. Go ahead, Dove. Give us your sense on on, on what happens next uh, with the Iranians. Well, uh, there were a number of sunset provisions that would have come into f uh, force next year anyway. So this deal really was much more short term deal than it was when it was originally signed. Um, it looks like the Iranians uh, are determined to go ahead and I don't know if they'll actually produce a weapon, but uh, at a minimum, I think they'll try to come up with the kind of ambiguity the Israelis have. Uh, the real threat has always been not so much to the Israelis who have layer upon layer of defenses and their own ability to take Iran out. Uh, I think the real threat is uh, to the uh, region, to the rest of the region, which is why there, there is an Abraham Accords, which is why the Saudis are cooperating with uh, Israel. Uh, and uh, secondarily, it may well be that they, the Iranians think they could provide nuclear cover for Hezbollah. Uh, but I don't think that's really the case, because at the end of the day, um, the Israelis could still deter them. Uh, I think we're just going to have to live with with the fact that uh, Iran, at a minimum, is going to have a capability it doesn't want to admit to, um, just like it hasn't admitted to the program in any event. Uh, maximally, it could announce that uh, it could test. It could announce that it's got a nuclear program. We're going to have to live with that, I'm afraid. Uh, unfortunately, but the rules of Fight Club, uh, I always thought is, uh, you know, 
you're you're in in the nuclear uh, sphere be careful who you threaten because everybody else has more weapons uh, and better weapons than uh, than you do dove thanks very much for uh joining us uh and uh really appreciate it patrick uh you get uh, the last word in terms of, you know, the JCPOA was an important uh, negotiated agreement for the Chinese uh, at the top table dealing with the global uh, crisis. How is uh, Beijing likely to respond uh, to the dissolution uh, of the JCPOA and its collapse? And more importantly, what are the lessons it's likely to derive, to derive given the Chinese are actually really good students of this sort of uh, stuff? Well, I think it is dissolving and not coming back. And uh, as a result, I think the Chinese will look to maximize their power with uh, the Gulf countries because the Gulf is the one that's rising in terms of power. I mean, you've seen a, a shift in over the past decade or two, really, from the Levant to the Gulf. And, and it seems to be rising whether we like uh, the, the governments there or not. Uh, and we like some more than others. Um, you know, China's going to curry favor with those those countries. Um, and uh, as for the proliferation problem, uh, they've got one much closer to home in terms of North Korea. North Korea has not yet uh, conducted a seventh nuclear test, but they're preparing for it still. Um, and that's probably because um, they see the effective trilateral diplomacy on the part of Japan, Korea, United States. That's not why they didn't test, but um, they see that uh, you know, the allies are getting stronger. China doesn't like that. Um, North Korea is still dealing with the COVID emergency while preparing for these possible nuclear tests and ICBM tests. So what does North Korea do uh, this week? Um, Kim Jong-un just sent congratulations to the queen for 70 years on the throne. And I think that is probably a message uh, saying, I'm going to be here for another 60 years uh, in charge of North Korea. So I've got time to build up my nuclear arsenal uh, and be uh, something bigger than, say, the Pakistan nuclear uh, program. Um, and I think that's what Australia, um, that's what the Chinese are going to be focused on, is the Northeast Asian arms racing that is uh, alive and well. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Terrific conversation. Hope you guys have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.